the book was written not from the point of view or not from the wish of writing an autobiography or telling a story of my childhood. All of those are examples for trying to underscore that classical music is a part of our Western civilization. It's integrated into the development of the Western civilization. And I was motivated to write the book and encouraged to write the book uh, following a number of speeches that I gave uh, in Germany in response to the suggestion that classical music was only for the elite or or a specific... I think that the times I've heard it uh, described as an elite art form. It was meant for people with a certain education, for maybe people of a certain age or economic uh, class. Or, And this was so uh, alarming to me that, I f- that this was a motivation for the book. Uh, classical music, as we call it, we mostly, th- mostly think of Johann Sebastian Bach, um, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, especially Beethoven, when we think of the symphonic uh, um, structure or the idea of a symphony sounding together. And these are all parts historically of what we look back today and call the Age of Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was considered popular music uh, as versus uh, something that was tied to a closed society like the royal court or the aristocracy or the church. These were all normally close to uh, the typical everyman. Unless you were born into the aristocracy, you couldn't actually work your way into it. It was just impossible. And I think that's what the basis was for telling the stories of a simple farm boy uh, who had the wonderful benefit of being educated through music in different ways. Uh, As you mentioned, my mother, yes, she was a musician, a performing musician, introduced me to the piano very, very early on. When you live in a rural area like I lived, um, boredom is a is a major factor, and uh, classical music offers, at least it offered to us children, a cost-free voyage to imagine or through imagination to different times, different cultures, different civilizations. Just open up our imagination, and in the community at that time, music was particularly rich because the church activities uh, was really built around a, a music tradition. Uh, and most importantly, in the United States during this period, uh, there was a heavy uh, priority or worth placed upon a cultural education as well as a scientific education. Another of the communities that you touched on is a church community. Maybe that's a good way to come to the music of Bach. And in so many ways, he's the key that, that unlocks a lot of things in your life and, and in music, too. Johann Sebastian Bach is a, is a rather special composer for, for everyone who appreciates music, but especially for those of us who have studied music. As far as I know, it's very, very difficult to avoid uh, going through, through an education that doesn't include quite a profound exploration of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, why is that? It's I suppose because he is perhaps the one composer who wrote perfect music. His music is so perfect that we use it as a reference point for all music that came after.
Bach is a composer that, as I mentioned, nearly everyone who loves classical music can't avoid. This is really the beginning of something that opens up for a lifetime partnership. And in my case, yes, it's true, um, um, Bach held, had held a particularly strong fascination since I studied the keyboard. Uh, obviously, Bach was, was an integral part of the beginnings and actually through the mature uh, study period. But we sang a lot of Bach in the children's choir in the church, and um, our reverend, our minister, maybe wasn't the most inspired all of the time. So uh, for especially those of us in the children's course, it was such an exciting moment every time that we could return <laughs> to, to the musical sections of the service because that meant that Bach would bring back quite a bit of drama and emotion and, and spiritual relevance. Nagano is music director of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. He conducts the Detroit Symphony this weekend at Orchestra Hall in Midtown Detroit. He'll be conducting music by Prokofiev and Anton Bruckner, who you also write about at some length in your recent book. What happened on that day with your friend David? Well, <laughs> yes, uh, you're referring to David Berryessa, a childhood friend who still remains a friend until today. Yeah. We were a little bit unusual because we both had a uh, had a great passion for classical music at a time when it um, it really wasn't seen as um, as an activity that would classify you as a very cool person. <laughs> it it uh, I mean you know times change, the eras change, but particularly at that moment, it wasn't associated with being progressive or being cool or being in with it. I had a friend like that, too. <laughs> <laughs> and it certainly did nothing to enhance our social lives. I mean, nobody wanted to touch us, actually. And to make things worse, both of us uh, studied composition and, you know, composers. The, yeah. At least at that time, we were to be avoided at all costs. So um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the activities uh, among several that consoled us in our uh, social sort of isolation was um, was a manifestation of a, a shared love of Bruckner, which began at a very early age. And again, at that particular time, Bruckner was, was not performed very often. It was considered, in quotation marks, difficult music, heavy music. And uh, from a box office point of view, it was certainly not popular at all. Students could always get a a discounted ticket to a, to a Bruckner concert. <laughs> you <laughs> but, took their discount, yeah. But uh, we would oftentimes uh, uh, go into thorough and deep analyzation of these scores. And we're talking, you know, in our early teens still. It's, we weren't mature. And go through and just marvel. At what was it that grabbed you about him? For us, it was, um, it was, it was the, the audacity and the freedom to feel courageous.
but also what would normally be considered, I guess, a, a negative uh, or unfortunate uh, situation. He wasn't particularly popular in his, um, during his life as a composer, and somehow when you're left alone or left in isolation, it's easier to, easier to be courageous if, if you have no pressures of feeling you need to please um, a set of aristocracy or uh, the popular culture. You really are free. And for us, what fascinated us was, um, I think, the keyboard-based concepts of, of harmonic uh, progression, the brilliant and oftentimes extremely complex counterpoint, the counterpoint of Bach, uh, but realized a uh, uh, hundred years later, uh, very, very um, wild kinds of, uh, of confrontation between different tonalities at the same time. And perhaps most of all was the the ability to create a certain tension that would last in very long forms. Uh, Bruckner symphonies are, are well known for being very long. Uh, we're playing the third symphony, the revised version of 89, and that's considered one of the shorter ones because it's about an hour in length. Uh, but uh, the full version of the eighth symphony, the original version, goes up until 90 minutes. So uh, we were fascinated by how to create a tension that, that would exist and carry over quite an extended period of time because as, as composers, it's not so easy to do. Um, it's very easy to write a, um, a creative moment. But how do you prolong that moment over a period of 15 minutes? Or how do you take a two-bar phrase and expand that over to 28, for 28 measures? Very difficult to do, so... You talk about ways that he, he might do that with like sort of blurring bar lines. Very, very much so. Uh, and this, this is something that we were rehearsing just today, is to actually play as if the bar lines aren't there so that it offers what Wagner called uh, a melody without end. I did really enjoy the way you wrote about Bruckner in some detail, too, that helped me kind of imagine in my mind's ear how he blurred bar lines or hid or obscured keys. But then at the end of the Bruckner section, you say, but I can't really describe this in words, so maybe I should just stop <laughs> now. It really made me chuckle and, and uh, really, really spoke to me. Well, it's, it's really true for all of us that, uh, that enjoy classical music. Uh, to try to put it into the words somehow never does really justice. It is a feeling, it's an experience. It's very different from any other kind of form because um, we experience it live. And in this, in this sense, um, it's not really something that you can hang on to or to touch. In fact, much has been written about the fact that we hear music in the past. The sound has already been produced, so we're, or we're hearing the past when we hear music. And we're imagining the future at the same time, especially if we know a piece. So that kind of um, ephemeral state, uh, it, it defies or really goes against trying to classify it into a, to a set of words.
I don't recall the last time Bruckner's Third Symphony was played at Orchestra Hall, so I'm eager to hear that this weekend, along with Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 3, conducted by Kent Nagano with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Maestro, thanks for coming today. Thank you very much. <laughs>